Thank you very much for that introduction, Jerry. I just have to start out by saying I am from New York and therefore a Yankees fan. Wait a minute. There's a long rivalry with Boston. And if we can't beat them, maybe you can. There's a, there's a, I'd like to thank also Future Church for this invitation. It is a real honor to be with you this evening, people who are so committed to the reform of the church. I have to tell you the first email I received inviting me here was four years ago. And each subsequent year when I couldn't come for scheduling reasons, Chris Schenk would then sign her next year's email, the hound of Future Church. <laughs> after me until here I am. <laughs> so thank you, Chris. And I am very delighted to share with you tonight uh, some reflections with regard to God, entitling this um, lecture, The Quest for the Living God. And I hope this might make sense to you why I choose this subject for our reflection tonight um, in the light of what's going on in the world today. I would like to begin with a brief reading from the play A Sleep of Prisoners by Christopher Fry. Toward the end of that play, a soldier is trying to break out of a church which is on fire. And he has a soliloquy, it goes like this. The human heart can go to the lengths of God. Dark and cold we may be, but this is no winter now. The frozen misery of centuries breaks, cracks, begins to move. The thunder is the thunder of the flows, the thaw, the flood, the upstart spring. Thank God our time is now, when wrong comes up to face us everywhere. Never to leave us till we take the longest stride of soul men and women ever took. Affairs are now soul size. The enterprise is exploration into God. I chose to center this evening's talk to you and with you on questing for God because church reform is exhausting work. It is a long and dusty road and discouragement comes easily. To sustain commitment over the long haul, reform needs to be centered in strong and deep relationship to God. Martin Luther put it graphically. He said, God is the one on whom you lean your heart. Or you could translate the German, God is the one on whom you rest your heart. And if you lean your heart, I think, on the ineffable mystery of love, who calls the church into being and continuously lures us onward as a church community, then we can find nourishment for the journey over the long haul. Now immediately, an interesting point emerges because over the last half century, a renaissance of insights 
into divine mystery has been taking place as different groups of Christians around the world have been struggling to deal with stressful historical circumstances. They aren't looking at God directly. They're looking at some issue in the world. And then what has happened? Out of the corner of their eye, they get a glimpse of God in a new way. St. Augustine said, O beauty ever ancient, ever new, too late have I loved you. And since the middle of the 20th century, people of faith actively engaged in different situations have been finding this beauty ever ancient, ever new in new ways. The process goes like this. People are having a religious experience as they engage a particular issue. That experience releases them to a sense, an intuitive sense of who God is and how God is acting with them in their history. Then theologians in that group begin to articulate this into more um, theological language, bringing forth different understandings that can be read and understood by a larger number of people. And then this insight into God opens up new paths of behavior, not only for the group that first discovers it, but for the whole church. So what I've begun to realize is the process is going from heart to head to hands. Groups are experiencing something, then it's being articulated by theology, and then it's being sent out to the whole church as a call for praxis. Now it isn't the case that a wholly new and different God is being discovered from the one believed in by previous generations. Christian faith today does not believe in a novel God, but finding itself in new and strange and difficult situations is seeking the active presence of the divine spirit precisely there in the midst. The emerging ideas of who God is and how God acts in the world and what God we are talking about when in the Nicene Creed we confess we believe in one God have opened up what amount to genuine frontiers for faith and action. And so in this talk tonight, I'd like to invite us to scout three of these frontiers. Feminist theology, interreligious theology, and ecological theology. First of all, consider the view of God arising now on every continent as women have come to realize that their human dignity, made in the image and likeness of God, has been consistently demeaned in structures and laws, theories and symbols and practices of both society and the church. In civil society, women have long been considered the second sex, unequal in education and literacy, in political and economic power, in protection from abuse and physical violence, in enjoyment of the basic rights of the human being. In the church, although women were co-founders of the community and witnesses to the gospels with their own blood, they were marginalized once the community became established in the Roman Empire. Barred from governing, 
women have for centuries had no voice in articulating the church's doctrine or moral teaching. Banned from pulpit and altar, their wisdom has not been permitted to interpret the word of the gospel, nor their spirituality to lead the church assembled in Eucharistic prayer. Now the sheer fact of the omission of women from the public sphere in the church led to the assumption that men have a privileged place before God. And in this milieu, theology developed grossly misogynist views about women's very nature. This is not male bashing. It's simply to say an elite group formed the doctrine and law and leaving out the insights of others led to distortion. For example, in the second century, the theologian from North Africa, Tertullian, writes about women, know you not that you are each an Eve? You softened up with your cajoling words, Adam, whom the devil could not get to directly. You are the gateway of the devil, and because of you, the Son of God had to die. Now that's pretty early on. <laughs> Augustine is known for saying that women are in the image and likeness of God in their soul, but not in their body. It's sexuality becomes a problem here. Um, saying that women will be considered the image of God only when taken together with man, who is her head. And then you've got the whole human reality. Aquinas, of course, is famous for his definition of women as defective male. Born because the man was not fully vigorous during the act of intercourse and planted the seed incorrectly. And so what came out was imperfect. Many men, both in society and in the church, have yet to learn to see women as full human beings with equal dignity and potential. Now, that's only one half of the picture. Because silent and invisible for centuries, women in our day have begun to stand up straight, like the woman in Luke's gospel, bent over for 18 years, whom Jesus declared to be free. By the grace of God, women are having the religious experience that contrary to what they have been told for centuries, and contrary to what they may have internalized, they are beloved of God, and that being female is not a defect, but a blessing. The African-American playwright Entosoka Shanga wrote a play entitled, For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough. And in that play, a black character, after terrible suffering, gathers herself to full strength and comes to the edge of the stage and declares, I have found God in myself, and I love her, love her fiercely. It becomes clear then, in the light of feminist, womanist, which is theology done by African-American women, Latina and Mujerista theology, Asian American theology, and theology done by women in third world countries. That women's uprising, this is a spiritual uprising that's taking place, cannot be 
confined to current structures. You cannot just add women and stir, as the expression goes, because that would require women to suppress their gifts in order to fit into already male-defined structures. The whole pattern of the church and society needs to be transformed to make space for mutual partnership. The goal is a new community. Now, as a result of this struggle, what glimpse of God so far has been caught? First of all, women who are engaged in this struggle begin to realize that they are uncomfortable with the dominant images of God as a ruling father, lord, or king. These images are built up from the unequal relation between women and men in society, and they function to maintain this arrangement. But once women no longer relate to men as patriarchal fathers or dominating lords or kings, then this sacred image for God becomes religiously inadequate in their experience. Instead of evoking the reality of God, they block it. Latina theologian Maria Pilar Aquino describes the shift that takes place. Quote, Once women realize that their ancient oppression could be lifted, and moreover, that God is on, they, on their side as they struggle to do so, this realization challenges the traditional view of God as ruling in the male interest. Instead of the patriarchal Lord who requires their obedience, we glimpse a God whose compassion seeks our partnership." End quote. Hence, women started out by seeking to relate to God in a way that would bring more mutuality into the relationship. They found God as lover, according to the pattern of the biblical Song of Songs, where both the woman and the man take initiative in seeking each other out. And once found, they praise each other's beauty. Rather than seeking a sovereign God who takes care of every problem, like a father or a big brother caring for a helpless little girl, who in turn pleases him by being quiet and dutiful, they are sensing the all-embracing love that liberates them into their own freedom. And in this relationship, women have begun to trust their own spiritual power. Astrid Lobo is a scientist and an active lay leader in the Catholic Church in India. And she remarked, quote, no longer do I see God as rescuer, I see her more as a power and strength within me who calls upon me to use my own resources." End quote. In other words, women started out by experiencing God as the creative life force, the empowering spirit who cherishes them in their gladness and pain, in their gratitude and anger, and their ability to change the world. But by envisioning the ineffable mystery of God in such non-authoritarian ways, women came upon a further question. Should femaleness be an obstacle to naming the divine? Or can women's human reality function as an excellence 
from which we can draw metaphors for divine presence and action. In fact, isn't the idea that we only have one set of images of God drawn from the excellence of men, doesn't that in the end make God an idol? Yes, insofar as it reduces the ineffable mystery of God to the form of those who rule in society. I remember when Mikhail Gorbachev visited Washington, D.C. back in the mid-1980s, and one reporter had discovered that his grandparents had had him baptized when he was a baby. And so the reporter, in a true American fashion, sticks the microphone in his face and says, do you believe in God? And Gorbachev answers with a wave of the hand, oh, I don't believe in him. I don't believe in him. And I said, see that? Even atheists take it for granted that God is a him. And then they reject it. You know, it's that ingrained, right? But God is not him, right? God is beyond gender. Of course, we know that. But we forget that in these use of one set of images, right? This graven image of the patriarchal all-male God is debilitating to human well-being. It gives rise, like it or not, to the idea that maleness has more in common with divinity than femaleness does. In fact, women can see themselves as created in the image and likeness of God only if they abstract themselves from their bodies and their sexuality. The result privileges systems of male rule and robs women of their own power. As Mary Daly famously noted, if God is male, then the male is God. But if God created women too in the divine image and likeness, can we not return the favor and employ metaphors taken from women's lives to point to the living God? Again, yes. Consider just one biblical example, that of mother. In Hebrew, the root of the word for God's mercy, rechem, is rim, the Hebrew word for a woman's uterus. Every time we appeal to the mercy of God in the Psalms, let's say, in the original language, we are asking God literally to have womb love on our wayward mistakes, to take us back the way a mother would take pity on the child to whom she gave birth. Isaiah puts it clearly. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should have no compassion on the child of her womb? Yet even if these may forget, I will not forget you. Isaiah 49, 15. Sally McFaig's theological work on this metaphor makes an unexpected connection between mothering and economic justice. Maternity, she analyzes, entails a threefold activity. First, mothers literally give the gift of life to others, and when it appears, exclaim with delight, it is good that you exist. In addition, maternal life nurtures what it has brought into existence by feeding the young and by training the young to acquire personal and social behaviors. 
And finally, this love passionately wants the young one to flourish, to grow and be fulfilled and not to be harmed. In fact, mother love rises up fiercely to defend anything that would do harm to the young. Now, good fatherly love does all of these things too. Parental love is really the most powerful and intimate experience we have of giving love whose return is not calculated. But the irreplaceable role of women's own bodies in giving birth and their close connection with breastfeeding and child-rearing lend a special resonance to the maternal model. So moving this toward God, the maternal love of God acts with these same characteristics. Like a mother, God gives life to the world, nurtures it, guides it, and desires its growth and flourishing. And the practice of mothers everywhere shows that far from being a passive act, this entails looking out for everyone in the household. If there is little food, a mother sees that it is fairly distributed. If one child has a special need, she tries to provide what is necessary. Sally McFaig writes, quote, the mother God as creator then is also involved in economics, the management of the household of the universe to ensure the just distribution of goods to all. End quote. In other words, what we have come to call God's preferential option for the poor is the expression of a mother's strong instinct to care for the child most in need. And as mothers rise up to defend their young, so too when people do violence to one another, the maternal love of God is active to defend and seek justice and heal. Like the mother bear in the prophet Hosea, God the mother rears up to protect her cubs, tearing the attacker's hearts out from their chest. Hosea chapter 13. The wrath of God has a place in this maternal metaphor. And we're not making sentimentality out of this. Right? Now, theology done in this spirit has lifted up other rich biblical texts as well, texts that portray God as wisdom or Holy Sophia, who is active in creating and redeeming and uh, sanctifying the world. Jesus told the parable of the woman looking for her lost silver coin, an exact parallel of the shepherd looking for his lost sheep. Again, Jesus mentioned God as a baker woman kneading yeast into the dough until the whole loaf rises. We can find images of God as female teacher, lawyer, midwife, lover, liberator, hostess, justly angry prophet, sister, and friend. In other words, God the creator, redeemer, and sanctifier, the holy one of blessing, blessed be she. The dynamism of these symbols, when uttered in situations of injustice against women, empowers women's dignity and challenges whatever demeans it. This glimpse into God as a mystery beyond the male image, a mystery of God actually beyond the female image, the mystery of God beyond the cosmic images, 
the ineffable mystery of God as love. What kind of praxis arises from this glimpse into God? The praxis of equality, full human dignity, and justice for women. This entails that the church is being called away from its own deeply ingrained patriarchy to build communities of the discipleship of equals, where violence against women will cease, and where women of all races and classes will be mutual partners with men, rather than subordinates or auxiliaries or romanticized symbols or marginal objects. Walking this path, women in this struggle hope today that the evil of sexism will not have the last word. Rather, she will. Now, there's much more we could say on that frontier, but let us move to a second frontier, interreligious theology. Consider the glimpse of God emerging as religious traditions jostle each other in this era of global communications and travel, multi-ethnic cities, and widespread immigration. However committed persons are to their own faith, the fact of other people's parallel religious commitments impinges on our consciousness in a concrete way not characteristic of former eras. Christians are discovering anew that other religions, in fact, promote lives of virtue in their adherence. Those who have taken the lead on this frontier are the Christians in Asia. Asia has 3% of the population being Christian. 1.5% of those people are in the Philippines. So if you subtract that, you've got 1.5% of the population of the whole rest of that huge continent being Christian. The Catholic bishops of these countries are at the epicenter of this experience. They have called and promoted, uh, called for what they call dialogue, a dialogue of life, which is just neighbors being neighborly to each other, going to each other's funerals, having tea, etc. Dialogue of action, where groups get together and promote some political or economic just cause. A dialogue of theological exchange, where uh, theologians, groups officially get together and speak about their beliefs. And finally, a dialogue of prayer. Such official and unofficial encounter with the religious other is placing the God of Jewish and Christian revelation in a new context. Because the deep spiritual wisdom, and the practice of goodness, and the devotion of people of the world's religions shows Christians that while in Jesus Christ, we have a unique encounter with God's ways in the world. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. No one else has this story or its sacramental enactment. This is our treasure. But while we have that treasure, we have to admit today that we no longer have a monopoly on either truth or virtue. So the mystery of the living God is shining ever more darkly 
as the God of Abraham and Sarah, the God of Jesus and Mary, meets Allah, Buddha, Krishna, Kali. What glimpse of God arises in such a setting today? First of all, the experience of encounter with others, especially the religions of the East, is leading dominant Western theology to discover its own finite limits. We have an intensely personal anthropomorphic cast to our view of God in the West. The Eastern notion of God beyond being, or God not as being but as nothingness, okay, introduces a bracing sense of God that is nothing short of mystical. God beyond our imagination, yet ever more profoundly near. But the experience of dialogue in that fourfold manner goes yet further. By opening up vistas unto God's unspeakable generosity to the human race, seen in the existence of a plurality of fates. Theologians in Asia, with their bishops, see it this way. They reason that if there is only one God, then presumably there is only one plan by which divine providence intends to bring all people into saving union with the divine. This plan presumably has an internal consistency, God not being scatterbrained, right? But by this line of thinking, we reach the realization that the divine design for the salvation of the world centered in Christ is multifaceted. This is the word they use. This design reaches its highest historical density in Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God, with significance for all. Yet the eternal word and the Holy Spirit of God is not constrained, not exhausted, not used up in this one particular history. Rather, thanks to God's gracious initiative, different paths have been laid down in different cultures and times and places, inviting people to share in divine life. Thus the religions with their saving figures and their sacred texts their beliefs and moral codes and rituals may be seen to be channels of God's word and grace set up by divine providence. The document of Vatican II Nostra Aetate said anything that's good or true or holy in these religions reflects a ray of the divine truth and holiness, and the church rejects nothing that is true and holy in these faiths. But to put this plainly, we're seeing today that the religions represent true interventions of God in the history of different peoples, and their very existence reveals the overflowing generosity of God, who before, during, and after the coming of Christ approaches all people with the invitation to divine life. Their very variety manifests the bountiful depths of the living God, which is never spent. Now, are all meant to be converted to the Christian faith? Here we come to a white-hot controversy of the moment. In the year 2000, the, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith issued the, the document called Dominus Jesus, the Lord Jesus. 
which answered that question with a strong yes. On the grounds that there is only one true revelation, and while acknowledging the presence and activity of the spirit in other religions, this document teaches that ultimately all persons must be enfolded into faith in Jesus Christ through the church. Now, the experience of faithful Catholics in dialogue on every continent, however, led to a great wave of criticism about that position. It's signaling that something else is taking place at the level of religious experience. Christians in dialogue are discovering that God is more than the God of our tribe. Try this on God, say to so yourself, God, is God a Christian? No. God has been up to something else in the other religions, something true and holy. Indeed, we might even benefit from learning from the religious wisdom of others. As yet, there is no conclusion to this argument. It is odd when you think about it that for centuries, Belief in Christ has been used in theology to obscure the work of God in other religions rather than to expand our appreciation of it. An imperialist framework for Christology made it appear that since the word is truly incarnate in Jesus, then God is not present elsewhere, or at least not so truly or lovingly. A hierarchical pattern of thinking, and I think that's at the heart of our problem here, led to the conclusion, that if I can put it this way, that since Christ is number one, no other religion is all that worthy of attention. Not only was divine presence obscured elsewhere, but Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, was brandished triumphantly like a stick to render others inferior. The God of Jesus Christ became a figure of closeness rather than openness. But understanding Jesus Christ as the sacrament of God's saving will enfleshed in history in an astounding act of self-emptying and interpreting Christ's universal significance in the light of the inclusive reign of God which he preached makes possible a more generous view. Christians need not, indeed must not, abandon the faith that Jesus is in person the word made flesh whose advent is significant for the whole of humankind, nor stop explaining to others the beauty of the gospel and its significance in our lives. But in the midst of Earth's history, this proclamation should be done in the same humble spirit that we are talking about. As Joseph Huff puts it, it is essential for Christian faith that we know we have seen the face of God in Jesus. It is not essential to believe that no one else has seen God and experienced redemption in another time and place. Rather than canceling out divine presence, then, the coming of the word of God in Jesus Christ is pointing Christians in dialogue to divine mystery everywhere presence and explicitly so in the religions. 
Rabbi Jonathan Sachs proposes some arresting analogies to show the enrichment that reverence for others can bring. What would faith be like, he said, if we acknowledge the image of God in another whose way is not our way? It would be like feeling secure in one's own home, yet moved by the beauty of foreign places, knowing that they are someone else's home, not mine, but still part of the glory of the world that is ours. It is like being fluent in English, yet thrilled by the rhythms of an Italian sonnet. It is like realizing that your life is a sentence written in the story of your own faith, and yet pleased to know that there are other stories of faith written in other lives, all part of the great narrative of God's call and humanity's response. As we are discovering the deeper truth than what we thought we possessed as a monopoly, the dignity of difference is becoming a source of insight. We are discovering the magnificent, superabundant generosity of God who is love and leaves no people abandoned. Let us move then to the third frontier. Consider the idea of God being glimpsed by those who struggle in faith to protect the earth. Contemporary science has unveiled a cosmos almost unimaginably old, vast, dynamic, and complex. Science today sets the origin of the universe at 14 billion years ago in the rather inelegantly named Big Bang. It then traces cosmic evolution through the formation of galaxies with their billions of living and dying stars surrounded by oceans of dark space. Our own solar system came into being five billion years ago, coalescing from the debris of older stars which, exploding in their death throes, cooked simple hydrogen into more complex elements. And then evolutionary biology traces the emergence and development of life on this planet, uncovering the expanding richness of life in all its diversity of species, and the thrust through false starts and dead ends and extinctions toward the emergence of mammals, among whom emerged human beings, we primates whose brains are so richly textured that we experience self-reflective consciousness and freedom, or in classical terms, mind and will. Matter, zesty with energy, evolves to life and then to consciousness and then to spirit. Human thought and love, then, are not something injected into the universe from outside by supernatural intervention but are the flowering in us of deeply cosmic energies arriving out of the very physical dynamism of the cosmos, which is self-organizing and creative. Even as we make these amazing discoveries, however, we are inflicting unprecedented devastation on our home planet, havoc which has reached crisis proportions, and you know the litany. Holes in the ozone layer, clear-cut forests, dead lakes, denuded soils, and so on. 
The widespread destruction of ecosystems has as its flip side the, the extinction of species. By a conservative estimate, in the last quarter of the 20th century, 10% of all living species went extinct. And more have gone extinct since then. We are living in a time of a great dying off being done at our own hands. Animals and plants that took millions of years to evolve are disappearing, and the problem is they won't come back. So we are killing birth itself of our fellow creatures. And their perishing sends an early warning signal of the death of our planet itself as a dwelling place for our life. In the blunt language of the World Council of Churches, the stark sign of our times is a planet in peril at our hands. Such discoveries about the physical world, our wonder at it and our wasting of it, are again opening up a new glimpse into God. For what kind of God is it who created precisely this universe with its evolutionary coming to be and passing away what kind of God is it whose glory is at stake in the very survival of life on our planet? Despite our belief in the doctrine of creation, you would be hard-pressed to hear much about this in an average sermon. The church has concentrated so strongly on the human dilemma that the natural world comes through as a kind of backdrop for the drama of our sin and redemption. But ask yourself this, if the universe was created 14 billion years ago and human beings arrived on the scene 100,000 years ago, or hominids 3, 4 million years ago, what was God doing all those billions of years? Twiddling the divine thumbs, waiting for us to come along and sin so redemption could take place, you know? I don't think so. In other words, we've been so focused on ourselves that the entire universe has uh, been neglected. There is a stream of wisdom in our tradition, however, that we can draw on. Today, theological work done in view of ecology is drawing on a theology of the Holy Spirit, who dwells not beyond the natural world, but always in classical theology, dwells within the world. The Nicene Creed addresses the Holy Spirit as the Lord and giver of life, vivificantem in Latin, the vivifier. So the stunning world opened up by Big Bang cosmology and evolutionary biology is leading us to a glimpse of God once again within the natural world, blowing like the wind, sparking like a fire, flowing like water in and around the struggling, living, and dying circle of life. The creative presence of the spirit in the natural world, then, raises in direct fashion the question of divine agency. How does God act in an evolutionary world? Traditional theology assumed that God created the world and intervenes at will to accomplish divine purpose apart from natural processes. That was our definition of miracle, setting aside the natural law. But the scientific picture of the universe today indicates that this is not necessary. 
Nature is actively organizing itself into new forms at all levels. Even the emergence of life and then human consciousness can be accounted for without special supernatural intervention. The bitterness of contemporary debates between some scientists who are atheistic and some religious believers who are adherents of so-called intelligent design flows precisely from the assumption that God is the kind of God who intervenes and sets aside natural laws. I want to say a plague on both your houses. <laughs> the fundamental view of how God acts that is held by both parties in that vigorous dispute is inadequate. Richard Dawkins wrote a book, you may know, The God Delusion. It's been on the bestseller list. It's an atheistic attack against faith. And in a review of that book, in the uh, London Review of Books, Terry Eagleton observed, quote, part of the problem with Dawkins' thesis is that he imagines God, if not exactly with a white beard, then at least as some kind of chap. So, <laughs> that is so British, you know, but it's also so true <laughs> in that argument, right? It is this deficient view of God as literally some kind of ruling monarch that gets contemporary discussion into this impossible dead end. But as ground and sustaining power and indwelling goal of the evolving world, we begin to see differently, namely that the creator is active in, with, and under the cosmic process in its own integrity. In other words, God makes the world by empowering it to make itself. Even granting this, what makes this conversation so dicey for theologians today is chance. Unlike the science of the Enlightenment period, which envisioned the universe operating in a determined mechanistic way, Today's science has revealed the existence of extensive zones of openness in nature. In these areas, what happens next is intrinsically unpredictable. This is not because we have not yet developed instruments capable of measuring such systems. Rather, there is something in nature itself that defies total measurement. Events at the quantum level, in one example, dynamic systems like weather studied by the science of chaos are another, and the biological development of species by natural selection is a third. These systems run along smoothly until some change is introduced. A gene mutates due to bombardment by solar rays, or a hurricane blows a few birds off course to a new island, or a um, a, a asteroid strikes the earth, wiping out the dinosaurs and thus opening up a niche for mammals to evolve. Smooth operations get disrupted to the point almost of breakdown. And then out of this turbulence emerges a more intricate and beautiful kind of order. This means that as far as science can fathom, the universe's unfolding has not happened according to a predetermined blueprint. A startling moment happened several years ago at the annual meeting of the Catholic Theological Society of America when Bill Steger, a Jesuit astrophysicist from the University of Arizona, asked us this question. 
Rewind the clock of the world back to the first moment and let it start ticking again. Would things turn out the same way? The scientific consensus is an emphatic no. Why? Because of chance. There was stunned silence and then an eruption of argument as a room full of theologians tried to wrap our minds around this idea and relate it to our basic assumptions about divine providence. In view of the open-endedness of the natural world, John Hort at Georgetown suggests, happily in my view, that we should no longer think of God as having either a blueprint or a set plan for the evolving universe, but rather a vision. And this vision aims at bringing into existence a community of love. He says at the Big Bang, we should imagine God saying to the world, go, have your adventure, and I am coming with you. The creative spirit is at the heart of this process, luring the world on in the direction of community, all the while inviting the world to participate in its own creation through the free working of its natural systems. You know, we Catholics have a very good advantage in this discussion with the classical concept of primary and secondary causality, that God is the God of all causes and enables secondary causes to work with their own integrity. Some theologians doing ecological theology now propose that we should think of God the Creator as a jazz musician who starts out with a basic score but then plays riffs according to the spirit of the audience and the mood of the night. Or a choreographer who charts the dance with input from the dancers. Or even a cosmic gambler who, despite Einstein's disavowal, does indeed throw dice. And always, this creative spirit, who is also God our Savior, is present when things get hurt and damaged, moving with mercy to renew the face of the earth. In essence, this creator God is a God of surprising promise, approaching us from the future at every moment, bringing forth life from death, calling forth hope. What kind of behavior responds to this glimpse of God? Obviously, love and care for the earth. In alliance with God's own passion for the world, we are being called for the protect and heal the natural world, even if this goes against powerful economic and political interests, and it does. Undergirding this ethic is the challenging demand to decenter ethical attention on human beings alone and be more inclusive in our ethical norms to include the whole community of life. Grounding such an ethic is a stunning principle, first articulated by Pope John Paul II in his World Day of Peace letter in 1990, and I quote, respect for life and the dignity of the human person. Now, let me stop there for a second. Most Catholics hearing that, you think you know where that's going to go, right? Respect for life and the dignity of the human person must extend also to the rest of creation. Think of that. 
All the church's teaching on social justice, in other words, needs to cross the species line now to include all members of the life community. Brian Patrick says, who is my neighbor? If Jesus were asked that question today, the Samaritan, the outcast, my enemy, yes, yes, of course. But it is also the whale, the worms, and the rainforest. Our neighbor is the entire community of life. We must love it all as our very selves. The moral goal then becomes ensuring vibrant life in community for all in alliance with God the creator who dwells within and loves the natural world. So to conclude, we live in terribly troubled times, both in the world and in the church. Written in another very troubled period, the first letter of Peter in the New Testament makes a key point. Your faith and hope now have to be centered in God. Centered in God because nothing less will sustain the effort for the renewal of the church community and its fidelity to the treasure that we are meant to proclaim. Centered in God who does not disappoint but keeps, us calling us, keeps on calling us into the future, promised but unknown. We have scouted three frontiers where the ancient beauty being rediscovered is giving new life to many people in their energies for renewal. God acting womanish, the generous God of the religions, and the cosmic creator spirit. There are many other frontiers. We are living in a veritable renaissance these days in discovering ancient and yet ever new understandings of God. These insights, I suggest, can nourish our hunger for a mature faith and our energy for renewal. And I would like to end again, as I began, with a quote from literature, this time Nikos Kazantzakis' novel, Report to Greco. He's also the author of Zorba the Greek. But in Report to Greco, he wrote, blowing through heaven and earth and in our hearts and the heart of every living thing is a gigantic breath, a great cry, which we call God. Plant life wished to continue its motionless sleep next to stagnant waters, but the cry leaped up within it and shook its roots. Away, let go of the earth, walk. If the tree had been able to think, it would have cried, I don't want to. What are you urging me to do? You are demanding the impossible. But the cry kept shaking its roots, calling, away, let go of the earth, walk. It shouted in this way for thousands of eons, and lo, as a result, life escaped the motionless tree and was liberated. Animals appeared, worms, making themselves at home in water and mud. We're just fine, they said. We have peace and security. We're not budging. But the terrible cry hammered itself pitilessly into the loins. Leave the mud. Stand up. Give birth to your betters. We don't want to. We can't. You can't, but I can. Stand up. And lo, after thousands of eons, human beings emerged, 
trembling on their still unsteady legs. And now, through struggle and desire, human beings are still being called ahead by this merciless cry. They resist and call in despair, where can we go? We have reached the pinnacle, beyond is the abyss. And the cry answers, I am beyond, stand up. Thank you.